is Evelyn Lees, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to episode 3.16 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. With additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I know, I know, this one's a little bit late. Apologies for that. Things in life have been, well, busy. Busy but fun. They unfortunately haven't involved sliding on snow for a couple weeks, but I'm thinking that will change soon. Many locations in the western U.S. are still brimming with snow, allowing for ample turns into the summer. I'm going to cash in on some of that soon. As I wind down the season of podcasts, please don't forget to reach out and let me know how you think I did this season. I'm proud of the growth of the podcast for the season, but let me know what you think. Let me know what you think I should focus on for next season, if there's any particular topics you want me to dive into be more than happy to do that um, you can drop me a line at the avalanche hour podcast at gmail.com you can dm me on instagram or facebook or you can always contact me through the website www.theavalanchehour.com today's episode features evelyn lees longtime u.s forest service avalanche forecaster for the utah avalanche center I caught up with Evelyn at the Northern Rockies Snow and Avalanche Workshop this fall. I was excited that she agreed to talk about her career and more specifically a topic that she was presenting on at the workshop. Evelyn, along with fellow UAC forecaster Mark Staples, have been doing some research on being solo in the backcountry, or more specifically and maybe even more importantly, effectively solo within groups in the backcountry. I really hope this is a thought-provoking episode that may tune up some of your habits of backcountry travel. Here we go with Evelyn Lees. Welcome to the show, Evelyn. Thanks for making the time. You're welcome. It's nice to sit down with you this morning. I was hoping you could introduce yourself and talk about some of the roles you currently and have played in the past within the snow and avalanche community. Well, currently I'm a backcountry avalanche forecaster for the Forest Service Utah Avalanche Center, and that's been my winter job for over the last 25 years. So I found a job I liked, and I've never been bored, so I've stayed in the same place. All right. So how, how did you first get hired on with the Forest Service? You know, it. I think my story starts back with um, just being an outdoor person and then being a mountaineer and then getting into the big mountains. So I had trips to the Himalayas, Pakistan, north side of Everest, um, and down into South America, a lot of big mountain trips. So 
you start, even before I knew avalanche forecasting was really a job, I think I was dealing with snowpacks and large avalanches and looking at big terrain. And then I ended up with a mentor, Rick Wyatt, and he was a highway forecaster. But we spent, you know, five, six days a week in the backcountry. You know, sometimes it was for, for fun. Sometimes it was, you know, digging snow pits and looking at terrain related to highway avalanche paths. So I think that jump started my knowledge about snow and avalanches. And then, you know, as the Utah Avalanche Center had openings, I just kept applying and certainly didn't get it the first time. But eventually in 1991, I got a you know, I was hired with the Forest Service as a seasonal part-time avalanche forecaster. Okay. So Evelyn, where did you grow up and how did you develop this passion for being in the mountains and start mountain guiding? I grew up in Maryland and I think my passion started when I was looking at, co I always did some outdoor stuff, but when I was looking at college catalogs in 11th grade, which were paper back then, I noticed Oregon State University had mountaineering for PE. So I just knew I wanted to take it. And I, part of the reason I went to Oregon State University and as a freshman, I took that mountaineering class and that was the whole start. And I've never stopped, you know, climbing, hiking and, and being outdoors. And so who have you guided for? Do you, do you guide for yourself or do you guide for an outfitter? What, what's your guiding background um, look like? My first start was a summer with Outward Bound in the Northwest in the late 70s and then in the early 80s I started guiding for Exa Mountain Guides so that was a 30-year summer career you know three to four months every summer in the Tetons and the Wind Rivers. Okay so you and your family would pick up and move and move to the Tetons in the summer and then come back to the Wasatch in the winter? Yep that was quite the pattern. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know in the Tetons eventually by the time we had kids we had uh, um, Exum seasonal housing so it was a small plywood cabin with no running water in Lupin Meadows and there would be a bath and a shower house and um, you spent most of your time outside because it was under 250 square feet so a pretty tiny cabin for four people and then and then especially when the kids were in school would move back to Salt Lake for the whole nine months of the school year. Gotcha. So Evelyn, you and Mark Staples, also or director of the Utah Avalanche Center, have put together a presentation that you've been traveling around and giving, talking about being effectively solo. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that and, and maybe give a little bit of a recap of that talk for our listeners. I think it's a really great topic and I'm glad that, that you all have come out with this talk. I have one question. Do I look at you or do I look at this? <laughs> you can look at the, yeah, if, if you're like speaking directly in there, that's um, I don't care. Um, the talk started the winter, when we looked at the, at the end of, uh, at the end of the 2016-17 winter season, we were looking at the avalanche fatalities for the winter and they were very low. There were only 12 of them. 12 fatalities, but it really um, was noticeable that four out of those 12 people died when they were alone. They were truly solo backcountry skiers and recreationists. And then when we started looking at the solo 
fatalities, some other accidents came to mind, you know, particularly like a snowmobiler who had started out with a group for the day, but had gone off on his own and was actually by himself when he triggered the avalanche that killed him. You know, the avalanche wasn't even witnessed by the rest of his group. They just eventually noticed that he was missing and went to look for him. So that's how we came up with the idea of a person being effectively solo and it can happen to any user group from skiers, snowshoers, snowboarders to snowmobilers where they start out the day with a group but for some reason their partners aren't in position to do a safe or an efficient fast rescue of them. And we defined effectively solo as three different we kind of came up with three different criteria. The first was the person's out of sight and the avalanche isn't even witnessed. The second is your partner witnesses the avalanche, but isn't in, but is too far away. And this is mostly non-motorized and they're not in position to get to you very fast. And then the third situation is where your partner's also caught in the avalanche. So they're partially buried and they need to dig themselves out, which often could take a lot of time before they can start the search for you. Well, I can, I can certainly recount some memories in, in my backcountry experience of, of skiing past my partner, or maybe I ski first, and uh, you know, I'm all the way at the bottom of a slope, and then I'm watching my, and, and hopefully in a safe zone, but I'm watching my partner come down and thinking, man, this is gonna take a while for me to get, get to them if something did happen. Right, and motorized users have the advantage. You know, they have speed, they can be in super safe places and get back to a last seen point in literally seconds. Those people who are non-motorized have to think about terrain a lot more carefully. And sometimes there isn't a safe spot mid-slope for you to tuck into, like under a cliff or below, you know, a stand of trees that's out you know, that's on a little ridge, or yeah, maybe you've got a subridge you can jump onto and watch people go by. So I think the idea of the talk is there's no one absolute answer, but people need to think a little more carefully about the train they're in and where they're, and how they're traveling with their partners and identify if, the, if there is a safer way to travel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, another thing that comes into play is just really good skiing or riding, right? You don't want to cut your run short. <laughs> that's kind of comes into the human factor side of things. Yeah, and I think one of the ways to think about that is somebody in the group needs to be the quote-unquote leader, mm-hmm. and they're the ones that aren't going to get to ski top to bottom mm-hmm. if there's a safe midpoint, and they're the ones who are going to say, okay, I'm skiing for the group on this run, and I'll do some slope cuts. I've got a safe spot picked out that's hopefully mid or upper part of the run and I'll be there and you guys can go by me and you know maybe we don't want everybody to go super long so we have a second person you know maybe mid lower slope but you take turns doing that whether you're you know it happens more in guiding situations but any group in the backcountry can um, use those travel techniques. Mm -hmm. One thing that you mentioned in your talk is is creating a fence line and something that we use in guiding all the time. Perhaps you could expand on that a bit. Yeah, using a fence line is a guiding technique that I think can 
be used by everybody and a lot of savvy backcountry users who aren't guides use it. It means you're at the top of a slope with your group and right now I'm talking about split borders or skiers and you make a decision that this is the section of the slope we want to ski and the first person makes the fence line and everybody in the group has agreed to stay to the left of the fence line. And it's especially useful if you're in trees or in terrain where it's hard to see the whole slope from the top or the bottom. And then that allows everybody to know where the group is approximately so that let's say you're in the trees and someone makes a fence line and you get down to your regrouping point and somebody isn't with you you know maybe their ski fell off maybe they broke a binding maybe they went you know fell down at least you've um, narrowed the area that you need to search because you know that everybody is to the left or to the right of that initial set of ski tracks mm -hmm. Yeah, and it seems like utilizing just shorter pitches sometimes is the most appropriate technique as well. Yeah, and I think the shorter pitches work when in you're in the thick trees, medium thick trees, or any situation where people are going to be out of sight a lot. You know, there's nothing like, you know, your partner disappears from sight and never reappears, and you're kind of wondering, well, you know, did they fall down or did they trigger some avalanche and I just can't see what happened you know they went down into a gully and there's actually an avalanche and i need to be searching so you know really looking at the train and trying to pick pick those short pitches and places where you can regroup or at least see everybody you know you don't pick a regroup point where the people at the top um can't see you, you know, unless you know you unless it's the only option and then you're doing a, vo a voice or a vocal shout out to say okay you know you won't be able to see me but i will shout and then you know when it's the next person's turn. Or, or you utilizing know radios. Right, and any sort of communication system, the, um, you know, radios can be very, very annoying in the backcountry, mm -hmm. but I think people who use them carefully can get, o get over the annoyance factor. So radios, um, also, you know, a lot of snowmobilers, the radios come in, maybe even helmet radios, but just anything to improve your communication if you're in the sort of terrain where you're really going to be losing sight of people. Um, Non-mechanized users in the backcountry avalanche terrain, how about some of the mechanized users? What are some travel techniques and tips that, that you guys have come up with to avoid being effectively solo? I would just say that for motorized users, heading off, you know, and playing on terrain features is just what they're doing. It's what's fun. Doesn't matter whether you're on a snow bike, snow bike or a snowmobile, it's not puttering along a road. It's seeing something that would be fun to ride. And so you head off left, you head off right. And I think with motorized users, that's why radios and are, can be very, very useful uh, because you're often out of sight of your partners. And then I think they just have to, you know, just the, it's a communication of going, okay, we're heading to from point A to point B, let's regroup at point B, and you know people are going to be out of sight briefly here and there, but if you have those regroup points fairly often, mm -hmm. and then they're, you know, snowmobiles have that advantage, though, then when they get to a place and it's there's good visibility and they're high marking and getting on to steeper terrain features that they can be in a super safe space spot while they're watching um, because they've got that advantage to get to where 
their partner is if there's a problem. Gotcha. <clears throat> so we've been talking about traveling effectively solo in a group. What about just traveling solo by yourself? Do you ever do that? Do you think it's a bad thing? And if you do do that, what are some techniques that you use to make sure your margins are a little bit tighter? Um, the whole point of the talk was not to tell people not to travel solo in the backcountry. I think solo travel can be really rewarding. I find it, I love it personally. I also find it can be really productive for work. You know, it gives me all the time in the world to kind of poke at the snowpack and look at different aspects and just go at my own speed. But having looked at those statistics, about 12% of all avalanche fatalities in the U.S. over these last eight or nine years are people who are traveling solo. And so that just tells me I need to be even more careful in the backcountry. And I think everybody needs to look at their own solo travel. But the things that have stood out for me are I need to back off of cornices that maybe have been a little too aggressive when I'm by myself kicking cornices. And and back off and choose smaller cornices without steep slopes beneath them and get the information I'm, I want that way. And also looking at the accidents that it can be a very small slope that ends up killing a person who's solo. So I need to, so it's looking at the terrain differently and realizing you really don't have a margin, much of a margin of safety. It's razor thin and something that would be a, a very small or non-event or have a good ending if you had a partner what looks like a benign slope if you're by yourself it can have a fatal consequence mm -hmm. we were talking the other night about some safety measures that at least at the UAC you all have put in place for for traveling solo such as using in-reach devices or spots you talk a little bit about your protocols at the UAC with that well we've after a fatality of a UDOT avalanche worker, we relooked at our whole fieldwork protocol, and we came in with a, we came out with a pretty specific um, check in, check out, check in policy. So when we check out, we're, um, you know, saying very specifically where we're going, what we're doing. We have to t rate that what we feel our hazard or a danger rating is. We have to talk about anything else we think could be an issue for the day, which, you know, could include, include crowds, that you're tired, that the driving's going to be terrible. So we really think it through. The forecaster of the day reads it, and for any reason, if either party wants to discuss it, they can call each other, you know, to say, now, why are you going there? Or, you know, do you think this is a good choice for my field work today? So, you know, we can have some verbal communication with the forecaster of the day. And then when we're solo, um, we're tr carrying a spot and it can be on tracking or we can hit I'm um, okay at specific points um, and then we almost always have something else people have regular phones in some areas we have sat phones we're going to be testing out the in reaches this year and so it's keeping communication but you know you realize if somebody doesn't come back or doesn't hit I'm okay for 20 or 30 minutes if they're caught in an avalanche it's too late mm. so truly when you're traveling solo it goes back again to you just can't make a mistake mm. whether you're going uphill downhill wherever you are the real goal is you are not putting yourself in a position where you can get caught in an avalanche mm -hmm. 
And that that seems to be decent protocols that could be related to rec backcountry recreationists who ski alone. You know, letting somebody know where you're going, giving them your tour plan, potentially uh, carrying in-reach or spot devices, and 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 have some sort of check-in protocol. Right, and I. Th Does that matter? Yeah. Okay. I agree with you and you know as time has gone on you know we're kind of used to a check-in check-out with uh you know especially in the summer you know here's where my car is I'm gonna hike to the top of this peak and hike back um, in the winter maybe you if you've got the ability even with just a cell phone you know is to be able to say hey I reached the top of the peak I'm heading down now or any point you can to give a quick text to your check-in person, mm -hmm. you know, of where you are so that should you not come back, they've got a much smaller area to be looking. Like, okay, you know, they reached the top of the peak and then they were halfway back and before they dropped into the valley, they checked in. So we know we're looking between the car and this point. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You've also compiled some data on people getting caught in avalanches while traveling uphill. So certainly, certainly a more vulnerable state to be in with your skins on. Traveling uphill, you can't, you know, you, you certainly can't ski off an avalanche or slab avalanche as easily. Um, could you share some of that data and, and some thoughts on traveling uphill? Yeah, the the win when we were looking at the data from the winter of 2016-17, I noticed that two out of the four solo fatalities, the people were traveling uphill, had their skins on or skis on their back and were booting. And again, it was seemed like a large percentage, so I wanted to look into that more. So with Linda George and Christina Raspolini, they helped me on that part of the study. And we just started going back through the data. It's focused towards non-motorized, so it was split boarders, skiers, um, hikers, snowshoers. And so that was only about 35% of those avalanche fatalities, or 81 over the nine years. So it's quite a small data set, but it turned out one out of every three of those non-motorized users died going uphill. And I found that number shocking. You know, we only came up with that last December, January, whenever we finished the study. Um, and so again, that tells me maybe people people's focus on snowpack and terrain evaluation is often on the downhill part of their day, like, okay, we want to ski the steep chute or this big slope. And looking at those numbers, we need to be also re-evaluating our terrain as we're going uphill. Um, you know, non-motorized people spend most of their day going uphill. Mm -hmm. And I think we all like going uphill. That's mm -hmm. part of the day. But we need to be making that a little safer, you know, picking the safest line, hopefully a non-avalanche train when you're going uphill. We need to be spaced out more when we're going uphill. Um, some other ideas are pre-trip planning. So already you know if you're with a group of people, this is where we're going to be crossing an avalanche path. Let's have a plan so we're hot, we're sweaty, and we don't have to stop and have a discussion. We already know when we get here that we're going to cross the slope one at a time and wait for the last person on the other side. So, so some techniques that are just ex uh, limiting our exposure within our group. 
Well, Evelyn, thanks for some great insight and sharing the gist of your and Mark's talk that you've been giving around these snow and avalanche workshops. Anywhere else people can find out any more information about effective solo travel and uphill travel? Yes, the article on those two subjects was printed in TAR last spring. So people can go online and find that through the AAA. Okay, great. Evelyn, we're going to shift gears here a little bit, and I'm going to throw you a curveball. I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, but what do you think the biggest issue facing the avalanche community today is? Avalanche in our backcountry community. You know, when I think of avalanche forecasting, I feel like we're still in this amazing growth period. Like so much has changed in the last 25-30 years and I feel like it's going to change again in the next 25-30 years. So in some ways I think for forecasters one of the biggest challenges is staying creative and keep looking at new technology and new ways of communicating and new ways of educating. I think a lot can be done with education. You know, the last 25 years we went from dusty slideshows to PowerPoints. Well, now it's time to leave these all these PowerPoints and become more interactive with our students when we're in the classroom. You know, the field work has always been very interactive. So I feel like there's, you know, in the same when it comes to avalanche forecasting is, you know, in a way we can barely keep up with all the new technology and all the new ways to communicate with people with social media and videos and constantly changing and simplifying and figuring out better ways to reach people. Um, I think education and forecasting for the motorized users is just in its infancy. Mm -hmm. You know, we're trying, we're, we're certainly on the upward curve, but obviously we need to do a lot more with those classes. Um, challenges, so I think as a backcountry forecaster, it's gonna be a really interesting, challenging job for the next 20 or 30 years, which makes it fun. Mm -hmm. um, the other big thing I think for backcountry users, I think the challenge is going to be crowding. You know, I'm sure you've done some podcasts on this already. It's just more and more people want to be out there and figuring out ways to keep people spread out and keep people from having negative interactions with each other, like triggering a slide that maybe hits someone or just you know, there are times when I'm out in the backcountry and an area gets crowded and I just leave, you know. So I think crowding in the backcountry is going to become a challenge. Mm -hmm. Especially in the Wasatch, if it, if it already isn't a challenge, right? I think it's a challenge in a lot of places. Think about um, Teton, Teton Pass. Pass yeah. And I think every, probably every area, I'm not familiar with everyone, but every area has the easy to get to places to go that are crowded. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's limited to Utah and Wyoming. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Evelyn, what advice would you have for a younger avalanche professional? I guess it would be just, oh, just get out there and learn from as many different people as you can. And certainly when you start your avalanche career, you could kind of feel a little overwhelmed and intimidated by the people you're with, but I think if you're, if you reach out and you ask questions and you listen, you'll find out there, almost everybody out there is willing to be a mentor and a teacher. And you might find you're with one person more than another and your mentors change over time, but it's learning from other people and now 
you know, honestly, I'm starting to learn from the younger people coming in because they have more ideas that are different and they're looking at things in a different way. And so I think it's just making sure you stay as collaborative as possible and keep your group of people that you're communicating with as large as possible. You know, it may not be you're out skiing with them or doing field work, but you're talking about snow with them. And maybe that's the big thing is talk about snow, you know, and if you can get out with other people, look at snow with as many people as you can. And not just the people that are older than you are or have been in the industry longer, but also the newer people coming up mm. and the younger people because they've got some great ideas and some great insights too. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe checking out different snowpacks. I've always enjoyed doing that, you know, not getting entrained into the same snowpack where I live. Right, and we're finding that more and more. We're, you know, last year we were dealing with wet slides like in January or February, February or something, and I feel like our snowpack is changing. Or over time, we do get to see a lot of different snowpacks. But um, at the UAC, we're hoping to do you know more exchanges just within within the state. Like last year, Drew went to Moab, and Eric came to the back to the Wasatch mm -hmm. for a forecasting week, and. Yeah, I think among forecasters, and that's why ski patrols have exchanges. Mm -hmm. You know, it gets you looking at a different snowpack, and then someday that's going to happen at your home resort. Absolutely. Um, any new news from the UAC this year? Any? What do you guys got going on? Anything up and coming? You, you've already had the USA event, and and any changes within the staff this year? Um, I think our biggest things are we've revamped our website and are also making it more mobile device friendly that's actually still in progress as the, this very minute as we talk and then we're gonna try this year to use avalanche problems that are the Swiss problems uh, we, after last winter we had a lot of times where we spent an insane amount of time tr tr time trying to decide if we were had a a persistent slab problem, you know, persistent avalanche problem or a deep slab. And we were going in circles and different zones were going back and forth. And so we're trying to simplify this year and just use like an old snow icon or a persistent weak layer icon. And I'm pretty sure it's still not up online, but we're going to switch to all those simpler Swiss icons and also just have one avalanche problem for wet snow. And then in the discussion, say whether it's rain on snow, whether it's you know, heating in the afternoon, giving us wet snow slides, rather than having multiple wet snow problems and icons. So I think that's that's going to be one of our bigger changes this year, is you trying to figure out if that works for us, and then educating the public that this is we're using this new system. These are the new icons. These are the new avalanche problems. Right. And are, are other avalanche centers that you know of, or is anybody else doing that? I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> They're doing it in Europe. Uh -huh. right. <laughs> but l like I said, we were just pretty frustrated last year trying to different differentiate between the deep slab problem and the persistent. Yeah. And felt like, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's a, per it's a faceted weak layer, and we can discuss the depth, mm -hmm. you know, and we can discuss how hard it is to trigger and we can talk about the size and the likelihood of triggering and that's all going to be there for the users still yeah well that'll be interesting to see how the the users find that perhaps maybe user more user friendly yeah 
Well, Evelyn, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down this morning and uh, and chat about being effectively solo and, and also your career path in the snow and avalanche world. Thanks. Cheers. Appreciate you tuning in today. We've got a couple more episodes in the cache that will be released over the next month or so. In the meantime, make sure you head over and rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen to it on. Our artwork was created by the talented Mike T. Check him out at MikeT.com. That's M-I-K-E-T-E-A.com for all your graphic design work. Music today was Poddington Bear. And it was made possible by the Creative Commons license. Tracks were found at freemusicarchive.com. Big thanks to the sponsors of the show, TAS Gazex, 10 Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. Until next time, enjoy springtime, and stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.